Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 26 of The Pick List. How has your week been so far? Hello, Laura. Really good week. Thank you. Lots of writing again for me this week, but most of the deadlines are now sorted, so uh, that's good news. What have you been up to? Yeah, good week. I'm working on a a big strategic project at the moment for a food manufacturer, uh, and I'm in the research phase, so I've spent quite a bit of time going around the supermarkets this week, which I've thoroughly enjoyed, as you know, because I'm a bit of a retail geek. Oh, fascinating. We've got a fantastic show this week. We have indeed. We are joined by Claire Handley, who's head of UK marketing at Maguntia. Claire is a brilliant guest. Um, Really, really interesting perspective on all sorts of trends. She's a big one on shopper behavior and shopper trends. um, Brought for some fantastic insights and stats to our discussion. Should we start the show? Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being our guest. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Fantastic. Could you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners what you do and how you're connected to food and grocery? Of course. Uh, My name is Claire Handley and I am the Head of Marketing in the UK for the Maguntia Food Group, where we specialise in in ingredients. Fantastic. And you've brought some very interesting articles about all sorts of really interesting trends for us to discuss. Um, So why don't you tell us about your first pick for us? I will do. So the first one is an article which I found in the Times, which was, I think it was on uh, Saturday last week. And it's talking all about how Thanksgiving is being embraced by Britons as we're trying to find any excuse uh, to celebrate, which I thought was really, really interesting. So um, as I said, the Times have reported a growth in Thanksgiving across the UK. And I guess in these uncertain times, these COVID times, um, us Brits have been looking for basically any excuse to try and celebrate. We've already taken on American traditions such as Halloween, proms, what would be prom now at schools, um, baby showers, which I didn't realise were a very American trend before I started reading this article. And of course, Black Friday, which is huge now within this country. We sort of look forward to it. A lot of people have holidays around this time of year, but never Thanksgiving. Um, And that is until 2020. Uh, A recent Waitrose report has actually stipulated that they have seen record numbers of um, people wanting to celebrate Thanksgiving and searches have increased tenfold on the Waitrose website itself and Thanksgiving turkeys, so not even turkeys for Christmas, are actually up 40% year on year so I guess that's a really good indication of consumers wanting to celebrate um, Thanksgiving. I think also what we saw in the, the the first lockdown, shall we say, uh, we saw a huge increase in barbecuing and, and roast dinners. Um, they became sort of like our main key activities as we could do little else. And um, I think it's really interesting now in trying to find out what, what trends can now lie ahead for winter. And I think this is where Thanksgiving really sort of comes into its own. Um, embracing global events, I think, um, is key, uh, what we've seen with consumer behaviour and this desire, I guess, for something different. And Thanksgiving really does give that element of, of something different 
Um, in terms of consumer perspective, I'm guessing Thanksgiving, it's, it's all about nostalgic moments and creating these um, memories with families um, as, as, you, as you can do little else. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a really interesting article just to see what we're doing as a nation and trying to embrace different, different cultures and different uh, traditions. It was a great article. I loved it. And you're totally right in terms of that occasion-based marketing and retailers wanting to grasp onto something and get, you know, that American vibe. Um, and I always think, you know, are we the first in Europe to, to pick up on that, I guess, being an English-speaking nation? And I suppose over the last year or so, uh, and we've talked about it a lot on this show, that you're running the gauntlet of retail, you you know, buying what you normally buy, you don't want to browse different things, and MPD can be quite hard to, to sell into consumers. Is something like this, an occasion-based marketing, an opportunity to get consumers to stop, maybe buy something different, as you, as you, as you said there, Claire, maybe t Turkey earlier in the year than the normally would do and I guess diversify into a range that they wouldn't normally go for um, rather than just you know that your meal repertoire of six to seven things that we're all rotating fajitas spag bowl that's what I'm <laughs> eating <laughs> yeah I thought it was it was fascinating um, that that could, it has now made its way in into the repertoire of, of a growing number of people so it's quite difficult to gauge the actual scale of a trend like that isn't it because we're talking about you know a ten tenfold increase in in search interest for instance and um, I'm assuming from a relatively small base so I think it'll be fascinating to see whether this is something that is going to keep up momentum in in coming years or whether that was a sort of very lockdown specific occasion where we're so desperate as you say to to kind of you know find those special occasions um and and, and perhaps you know embrace something like uh thanksgiving more than we we normally would have done um also fascinating to see that they quote some research there or cite some research that says Coventry is apparently the uh, the hotspot for UK Thanksgiving celebrations. So um, that's uh, I'd, I'd love to see the research there and um, and what that's potentially uh, based on. But yeah, always so interesting to see these sort of emerging occasions. And yeah, when we first talked about Halloween or you know whatever other trends that have made uh, their way over from from the US, they do start quite small, but they can obviously grow into. Um, really, really big occasions for, for retailers and consumers as well. Yeah, so, yeah. absolutely. I mean, like Halloween, um, if you've only really got to look around all the retailers, I guess, and you can see gondola end activity, there's bespoke pieces of MPD. So it's interesting, again, with what you said, Laura, in terms of that seasonal marketing, is this another event that the retailers can adopt and, and really sort of like eke out that, that weird sort of time between August and going into bonfire night and then Christmas? Could it be bigger? But like you said, you yeah. have to wait and see. Julia, what's your first article this week? So my first pick this week is from the FT, and it's an article titled Singapore Grants World's First Approval to Lab-Grown Meat. Uh, this is a story that's been widely reported this week. It's a landmark moment for the development of lab-grown or cell-cultured or cultivated meat because Singapore has become the first country in the world to give the regulatory green light, allowing a lab-grown meat product to be sold to the public. Um, the product in question is chicken nuggets produced by a US company called Eat Just, and they're expected to go on sale in the near future, says the company. 
what that means exactly, I suppose we're going to see. But um, the plan is to partner with local manufacturers to produce the nuggets and then sell them initially via restaurants. But um, in their own press release on this development, Eat Just do say that they also plan to launch a new meat brand called Good Meat. Uh, which is interesting branding, um, but uh, no further details disclosed on that uh, at this point. This story fascinates me for several reasons. I'm really interested in lab-grown meat. Generally, Laura knows this. I love dragging uh, a lab-grown meat story onto the podcast and see what she makes of it uh, from a meat industry perspective. Um, and this is obviously a really big moment for, for that lab-grown sector, we hear so much about product performance, scalability, and cost being barriers that lab-grown meat has to overcome. Actually, regulation is just as important. And in many ways, navigating that regulatory landscape has been very challenging for, for that sector. So having a regulatory authority on board now is a huge step. And it's a huge signal. And the hope in the sector, of course, is that authorities in other countries will now follow suit as well. The second reason this is a fascinating story is because of the company involved. Eat Just is a very interesting company. They're probably the most high profile, the most colourful, in some ways the most controversial company involved in the lab-grown sector. It's a hugely ambitious company. They've talked about uh, for some time about wanting to be the first to bring a lab-grown product to market, and they've really pushed the timelines for the rest of the sector. And what is interesting about them is that their background actually is in plant-based alternatives. Eat Just started out making plant-based egg alternatives from mung beans. And they used to be known as Hampton Creek and later rebranded to Just. Um, and they developed a very successful range of egg-free products such as scrambles and mayo alternatives, which are stocked in major retailers in the US and in other countries. And then they started getting into lab-grown meat. And as I mentioned, they've been pushing a really ambitious agenda there. But the fact that they have this existing business around plant-based products means they have relationships with retailers, they have developed supply chains, they have a consumer-facing brand, and they have an experienced comms and marketing team, all of which is quite different to the rest of the lab-grown market, where you have... Um, Typically, uh, companies still at that R&D stage, first and foremost. So super smart, impressive people doing really impressive scientific and product development work, but most likely without that commercial experience of bringing products to market. And I think it's important to understand that Eat Just isn't in that category in order to understand and, and sort of grasp the significance of, of the development here. They have some real commercial experience and a track record in launching successful consumer products. So I think it'll be fascinating to see how they now bring this to bear in Singapore and how quickly they can scale up their nuggets. They've already talked about potentially having chicken fillets as well. They want to look at beef burger products potentially in the future too. Incidentally, there is a really good book on all this called Billion Dollar Burger by Chase Purdy, which I should mention. Um, Chase is a reporter for Quartz. He's written about lab grain for, for several years. He spent a lot of time with Eat Just in particular, so he understands that company very well and how it fits into the market. So for anyone who's, uh, who's sort of interested in uh, 
deepening their understanding of, of what has happened this week beyond just what is in the news and beyond the regulatory side of things. And um, I think that book is, uh, is definitely worth reading. Claire, what did you make of it? And what's your take on, on lab-grown and, and, and the potential it has? Oh, I think being very, very close to consumer insight on this one. Um, there's so many barriers to purchase with this. Um, on the one hand, it's incredibly exciting um, in terms of a, a production capability and sort of like from a global perspective and being able to, to feed the world. But on the other hand, I just think there's so many different um, reservations about lab-grown meats. In a recent Mintel study, which I think was conducted only in January 2020 of this year, um, when they asked consumers, and this was across Europe, nearly 40% of them stipulated that they found lab-grown meat absolutely unappealing. And I think that's going to be one of the biggest sort of like challenges the industry is going to have to sort of get over, I guess. Um, it's also interesting in terms of how is it going to um, benchmarked against your traditional meat products? So is it going to be more expensive? Um, and I think unless it can be sort of like on parity, I think that's going to be really, really difficult for them. And then the other big thing for me is taste and texture. We know from any consumer perspective, that is a huge, huge level of importance. So making sure that these meats have the taste and texture um, level of expectations, because when you speak um, to consumers and all the insight that I've seen, certainly it leads you to understand that even though it's a, a meat alternative or, or lab-grown meat, they still expect the taste and the texture of what you would with meat. So it's a difficult one, but also incredibly exciting. I'm taking a big breath in. Can you hear that? Uh, <laughs> because you're right, there's some major challenges out there, Claire. And, and you're right, Julia, that this is a, a, a massive step forward. And the amount of press that this has just had in the, in, in the last 12 hours alone, it, it's, it's, it's really significant. And the thing in the article um, that really struck to me, and as you've alluded to, Claire, is the yuck factor. How do we communicate to consumers what that lab-grown meat product is? And we see, I guess, some of the plant-based players are doing an amazing job. And this is something you say regularly, Julia, you know, you only need to walk in, a, in the, to the a supermarket and look at meat-free products. It's innovative, it's branded, it's punchy, it, it's communicating. And then you look at meat products and it's traditional, it's not really communicating as, as well as it could do. I guess so one of the other bits that I see um, data on is, for in the meat sector, one of the things we don't do enough of is talk about farming. And that's not necessarily just talking about country of origin, but probably talking about, you know, the land and the important of far, importance of farming. And that's the thing in a lot of consumer data as well that really switches people on. They want to support agriculture. They want to support British farmers or Irish farmers or wherever you are. That's important to them. So getting over that yuck factor, the elements of you, as you've um, spoken about there, Claire, and, and bringing in that farming perspective, um, I don't know, could be an option, but it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge. And it'd be very interesting to see how these big meat processors are, are dealing with this. And, you know, a lot of them have one eye on it and it is a concern to them. But as you say, Claire, how, how's it going to be merchandised? How's it going to be priced? And we're seeing a huge challenge in the meat sector at the moment because margins are so low and margins are so high on meat-free products. And then notwithstanding, there's huge pressure from the NGOs on retailers to be selling less meat. 
So what are the sustainability criteria around lab-grown and could this be a vehicle to allow them to arguably have better sustainability requirements? I think it'll be fascinating. And, and as you say, um, I think the big, several of the, of the big meat companies, I mean, they have more than an eye on it, haven't they? You know, if you're thinking about Tyson and an investment in, in a company like Memphis Meats, you know, I think that, that it's, they're very much alive to the fact that this is, um, this is a, a sector that needs to be, needs to be taken seriously. I think the big challenge at the moment, and it's, it's all of those things that you both talked about, but I think it's also a, as an observer um, and a consumer sort of getting your head around the fact that this is probably, this is the first iteration of a product. You know, we think about meat as it's, it's, the, the finished article, essentially, you know, you can have different cuts, you can have slightly different product formats, but we're not really talking about reinventing the chicken breast in any uh, meaningful way. Whereas here, this is an engineered product. And um, I think whatever this, this, this nugget product is going to be, it will be the first iteration, it'll be a really early sort of prototype um, of, of a product. But I think the, the technical expertise in that sector is developing so, so quickly. Um, and I think the scalability is something they're working on at real pace as well. I would not bet against that sector coming up with products that are going to be price competitive. I mean, already, if you look at how quickly the cost has come down on lab-grown products, it's phenomenal. You know, you just talk about, oh, it'd be a, like a premium chicken product in restaurants. But, you know, when those first lab-grown burgers were unveiled by, by Mark Post of, of Mosa Meats uh, several years ago, every bite was sort of several thousands of pounds worth of, uh, of lab-grown product. And now we're talking about something that is going to be, you know, on a par with a slightly premium chicken product. Um, so, yeah, the, the pace is, is just extraordinary. But uh, at the same time, some significant barriers still. But I'm, this won't be the last time I think that I'm going to drag Laura into a conversation about lab-grown meat. I think this is going to be a really, really interesting and fascinating uh, sector to watch. And one thing you mentioned there, which I probably didn't think of when you, you're just chatting that through, I suppose for food service, this could be a real opportunity for have a, a heavy demand on a certain part of the carcass. And the meat industry always has such a challenge, and we've seen it this year, haven't we, with, with uh, carcass balance, particularly on beef. And you think actually for some food service operators, this just guarantees supply and doesn't create other issues on, on carcass balance elsewhere. And maybe that is an opportunity too. But yeah, it's going to be very interesting to chat about. Laura, what's your first pick for us? My first pick this week is from The Guardian and it's a headline, Britons with a lockdown binges of Europe fine study, which automatically caught my eye, probably because the, the picture on the headline of this was a nice juicy pepperoni pizza, so I, I was straight into it. So this is a study um, led by the European Institute of Innovation and Tech, um, EIT for short, and they've completed a study of over 5,000 consumers across 10 European countries. Uh, and they found that lockdown restrictions may have caused lasting positive change in relation to food consumption with significant shifts in shopping patterns, meal preparations and eating habits. So one of the first things that they found that the UK was pretty much in line with Europe in terms of consumption of fresh food, um, in terms of vegetables and fruit. Uh, and we were up over 30% um, um, across those categories uh, before uh, what 
before what it looked like uh, um, pre-COVID. And we've spoken about that a bit on this show about how we're all eating more vitamin C and, and more oranges and that sort of thing. Um, but however, the British are snacking and boozing more than other countries in Europe. And the report stated that the largest rise is in consumption of convenience foods at 29% alcohol at 29 also and the ominous sounding tasty treats at 34 percent which is really interesting and it all the article goes on to say about how we've been talking a lot about cooking more haven't we and scratch cooking and the study found that uh, whilst we've been confined to our homes there's been um this rediscovery of pleasure in cooking with 42 percent of people saying they're spending more time experimenting with new recipes um, but we're also snacking more, a 27% increase um, rather than in eating set meals. This was the largest increase in any category across the 10 countries surveyed um, for, for the UK. So basically, we're eating a lot of tasty treats, whatever they may be. One of the other findings in the uh, survey, they also found that more than a third of people, so 35%, said they're buying local produced food and had become important to them during the pandemic. And this was a trend for local shopping, which is likely to stay, with almost uh, 90% reporting they were very likely to continue to support local shops. So I was super intrigued by, I guess, how we're all changing as a nation and then how we're changing when we're benchmarking that against Europeans. And unsurprisingly, maybe that's a bit harsh, the Brits have come out worse and we're, and we're snacking more. What do you think, Claire, and I guess your experience of uh, UK food consumption, is that a surprise to you? Or do you think, of, of course, we are having more biscuits and more booze and that sort of thing? I think, I mean, the first lockdown, it was great, wasn't it? Everybody was baking banana bread, baking loaves, Victoria sponges. Instagram was full of, look at my home baked goods. And it was exciting. It was like giving you that chance to reconnect. I think everybody's got bored of it now. It's, it's, it's nice being at home. It's lovely being at home. But when you're thinking about how many meals you've got to cater for, it's not just breakfast and your evening meal and a bit of supper. You've now got breakfast, lunch, afternoon snacks, uh, evening meal and, and supper time it's becoming a huge strain on many many households which is why we have seen a huge increase in convenience consumption I think also the um, the meal boxes and the meal kits it's it's bringing that little bit of little luxuries isn't it back into the home where you haven't really got to have that much connection with the food you're preparing it's nine times out of ten you can just pop it in the oven and in half an hour it's done for you so I, I am I'm not surprised at all and I think there was another great fact from the first lockdown from Cantor where they said in the first four weeks of lockdown for this year the UK consumed more chocolate during that those those four weeks uh, with Christmas and Easter combined from the previous year so it just goes to show we, we love a sweet treat yeah, and uh, that was probably just my house. Uh, and <laughs> one of the things that I think about when I'm looking at the, the, this report, and I guess, um, Julia, being a, a European, you'll have a good lens on this. Is this because, you know, when you go into a UK supermarket, we've got more convenience food, we've got more ready meals, we've got more of this stuff, so it's just more tempting for us to buy, whereas if you go into a European supermarket, arguably there is a bit more scratch cooking components putting together or am I a bit of a dated view now I don't know I, I feel like I'm possibly in danger of presenting a dated view on this that might be 20 years out of date <laughs> based on when I um, when I lived in in Germany um I I don't know I think we we definitely and I I 
consider myself part of the uh, the UK snacking problem, uh, definitely. Um, I, I think there is definitely a, a sort of... Uh, a love of of snacking, but I don't think it's necessarily because there are so because there aren't those options available in um, in in European supermarkets. I think perhaps some of the the cooking traditions are a little bit uh, different um, on the continent compared to to what we have here. Um, but I think the point that that Claire raises is interesting as well. This sort of COVID cooking fatigue. Um, there was a, a really interesting piece in the New Yorker a week ago, and it was actually written by their food correspondent, so someone who is um, very enthusiastic about cooking. And she wrote a sort of confessional piece saying, um, "I, it's my job to be excited about cooking, and I'm, I love cooking." But I am so bored. I'm so, so bored because I'm having to cook all the time. And it's kind of stolen the joy from it a little bit. It's just become a, lit, uh, a bit of a chore. And she cites some, some really interesting kind of examples from uh, how that sort of conversation around COVID cooking fatigue has picked up on social media as well. So I think there's definitely a, a marked contrast between lockdown one and lockdown two. And I think we are all ready to to just have a little bit more variety and as you say that sort of excitement that convenience foods obviously can save you time but as you say you know particularly if you're going for for those recipe boxes it's also about inspiration and excitement and just having something that breaks you out of your routine of, of that repertoire of, of you know six or eight meals that you're sort of cycling through um so yeah it'd be I think we're all ready for, for a little bit of, uh, of, a, of a change as well and I would imagine that that trend more towards convenience foods is going to continue for a while as well I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens at Christmas as well because it seems that there's not so much MPD this year as compared to years before but there's still those little difference and those little luxuries that are out there so I think it'd be really interesting to see how we continue to shop and whether we're looking for something new and different totally and it just reminds me thinking about that tesco um christmas campaign um saying oh it's it's a two desserts kind of year so i guess yes. we're going to continue um with that uh, with that sort of indulgent theme and uh, and why not i think we deserve it after after the year everyone's had <laughs> claire what's your second pick for us um, my second pick is from the grocer on Tuesday, and it's all about um, kimchi and the fact that um, it's in growth. And as a, again, as a nation, it's something that we're having a lot of interest in right now. So um, it's apparent that this modern Asian trend that we've seen for the last sort of couple of years, which has been slowly bubbling away, um, isn't going away. And in fact, it's appearing is growing more and more each year. It's a really interesting article for me as we've seen, again, consumers wanting to experience authentic cuisines um, and they really want to almost sort of like immerse themselves into the culture. And as the grocer reported last week, um, kimchi is now worth £2.1 million within the UK. And that's actually 656 tonnes that we've um, imported directly from Korea. So it's a trend that um, the Korean government have reported that's been going over the last five years of, of our love of um, kimchi. And sales across MFMZG are in considerable growth. I think Waitrose reported most recently that they've seen an increase in kimchi of up to 43% just during the first lockdown. So again, it's really interesting where you've got on one hand all these treats and sweet um, indulgent, and then you've got um, on the other hand a healthy, healthier kimchi. 
I think um, the other element of interest for me is the health aspect related to kimchi. Um, so that link of um, gut health to your overall more holistic health. And that seems to be what consumers, um, shoppers are really sort of like looking, trying to find out. And that's where all the um, searches have been around in terms of prebiotic, probiotics and gut health. So, yeah, I think um, this modern Asian trend is certainly a theme that we've picked up on as a business and we've identified that it isn't going away anytime soon. And from looking at how consumers are consuming all the different cuisines available now within this country, there's a genuine thirst um, for something new and something different. Again, probably going back to that COVID fatigue that we're all experiencing. And I think there's a huge sort of like investigation wanting to know about global cuisines and really bringing them to life. And also for, I guess, Generation Z, um, they are becoming one of the most influential key um, demographics within uh, the UK society. And um, it's no surprise, I think about 79% of them have travelled um, up to 16 or 17 countries by the time they're age 15. So global cuisine and, and more sort of um, food from, from different countries is inherently part of what they're looking for. So I think it's, it's going to keep coming and health something different and um, relating more to to more global cultures is is really interesting. It's fascinating, I think, particularly around that, um, as you said, that gut health trend and fermented foods have become such a such a big trend here as well. I think it's very interesting to see also how NPD around sort of traditional products like kimchi has developed because the article talks about um imports uh, coming coming from Korea but of course there are brands here UK grown brands that have sort of looked to um, experiment or kind of innovate around that as well and, and put a kind of twist on 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 the sort of traditional uh, kimchi products that that we would normally be getting from Korea so it seems to have sparked a lot of really quite exciting innovation as well and it's interesting to see which sort of UK specific interpretations of a cuisine like that then then ultimately make it onto shelves as well. It's one of those things that I feel like I should be eating and I've never had uh, <laughs> you're a whole gut health thing that I, I, don't, I don't know it's maybe I'm not sure if it, I'm the demographic but everywhere I look it always seems to be about gut health and you know how much it helps your brain and makes you perform better at work and all this sort of stuff and I think I don't know, even a couple of years ago, I, I very much wasn't seeing that link to food. So it's uh, it's something that's it's definitely going to come more and more for sure. It's just uh, it's too tempting to reach for the packet of biscuits and think, yeah, I should be eating that. But instead, I'm, I'm going to have another gingerbread man to power me on at three o'clock. Julia, what's your second pick this week? My second pick this week is an article titled The Old Ways of Working Are Outdated. Unilever is experimenting with a four-day work week. Uh, this is a theme that we've covered before when we talked about the Morrisons announcement and uh, the experiment they're doing at their HQ with a four-day work week. Um, this time it's Unilever uh, trying out different ways of working. It's Unilever in New Zealand specifically. And as of next week, Employees there will be on a year-long trial, working four days a week, but being paid for five days. And um, the idea is that it's a year-long experiment to see what the impact is on productivity, on um, work-life balance, employee satisfaction, etc. And then potentially make this a permanent arrangement or even roll it out to other markets. Um, Unilever New Zealand has 81 employees, so this is a modest trial in terms of total size right now, but worldwide they have 155,000, so you can scale this up quite quickly if uh, if this is something that they decide works. Um, 
And the decision to trial this was prompted by obviously what's been happening with the pandemic, the disruption we've seen to normal working patterns, working from home, etc. But interestingly, the article points out that the New Zealand government has also really pushed for employers to look at new, more flexible work arrangements, including the four-day work week, um, with Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister, calling on employers to, to uh, look at four-day work weeks to improve work-life balance and employee well-being. Um, Unilever say they also drew inspiration from another New Zealand company called Perpetual Guardian, which tested a four-day week a few years ago, found that it dramatically increased productivity and satisfaction, and they have since made it permanent. Um, For its trial, Unilever is working with the University of Sydney to document and measure the impact of moving to a four-day working week, which I think is great because hopefully at the end of this year-long trial, we're going to have some uh, pretty interesting, uh, robust data that um, other employers in the industry can look at uh, and and use that to inform uh, their own decisions around uh, four-day working weeks. And especially in grocery, as I mentioned, we've already seen Morrison's announce that it's experimenting with a four-day week for staff at its HQ, which we've talked about previously on the show. So I think there'll be a lot of eyes on this particular trial by Unilever. It'll be interesting to see if any other big FMCG names decide that this is something that they, they want to embrace in, in the wake of the pandemic. Claire, what did you make of this? And uh, are you is that a conversation that's live within within your own business as well? Sort of looking at new ways of of working and potentially considering a four day week. I think we we've all had, sort of like, had to look at different ways of working, haven't we? With lockdown and with a lot of us working from home and embracing different technologies. I don't know how I feel about the four day working week. Um, I think from my perspective, working from home and only sort of like speaking on ninety percent terms via technology it's quite lonely so I, I quite enjoy being at work at the moment and um I don't know I I'd, I'd love to see sort of like the outcome of the year-long trial to really understand the productivity and the efficiency um of of the is it 80 or 81 members that are part of this 81 trial. um but I think the first sort of like alarm bells for me is how would they fit everything in within four days you're totally right, and I think that's some of the challenges that we, uh, or I'm picking up from some of the the, the folks that are trying it already, uh, p- potentially in Morrison's that they're trying to squeeze full time jobs into condensed hours, and how do you do that? And I guess uh, not specifically about Morrison's, but you need permission from the top. And if you get in the tech world that we live in now, you know, you've got your Apple Watch or your phone or whatever pinging away 24-7. And how do you, whatever day of the week it is, you're not working on a, on a Wednesday, not react to that and, and just let everything stack up. Because, you know, if you don't deal with it, then you're just going to have to deal with it on a Thursday and work even longer on a Thursday. So there's, I, I like I like the theory of it, and I, and I probably believe the productivity angle. But I think it's human nature to want to that disease to please and feed the animal. And I don't know if, uh, about you guys, but I'm, the people I'm chatting to more and more, they're feeling that they're getting um, more and more emails. So when uh, I, I don't know if it's because, as you say, Claire, we're not in the office as much. So Pete and people aren't naturally picking up the phone maybe as much anymore. We're arranging video calls, so people's diaries are stacked. So it's easier to send an email. So that admin bit just seems to have grown tremendously for me and some of the folks I've been chatting to uh, over the last 10 months. So 
I think, you know, you're going to have to put a blocker on emails for that day, maybe on your corporate server that you can't get that. No emails after seven o'clock at night and to have that as a really strict from the business. Otherwise, particularly for, for FMCG, if you're one of your customers is saying on the day that you're not supposed to be working, we've got a challenge. You know, you, 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 you jump, don't you? That's that's the game you're in. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think that's exactly that's the challenge of um getting people, avoiding employees sort of overcompensating for losing that fifth day of the week by working super, super long hours or just being glued to their phone. And I suppose it's particularly difficult if you're in that sort of pioneering position where you're one of the first companies in your sector trying something like this and how, you know, your customers' expectations, everyone else's expectations are still, well, it's Friday, of course you're at work. Um, how do you communicate that in a way that is doesn't become massively awkward and requires you to sort of communicate detailed schedules of you know who is available at at which at which stage I think that that must be challenging I definitely buy into this idea that I I think there is a lot of dead time um in in a sort of in that classic nine to five office setup and I think there are probably opportunities um to to take some of that out and just have a slightly more uh, more concentrated more focused working week but how you then um, get other people to understand what your specific uh, arrangement is. I think that's difficult. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know how you would do that because there would be such an expectation, as you say, Laura. Especially if you know you're working in FMCG and people are under pressure. Um, are they going to be super happy to see that you know you're working? You're not working on a Friday. I don't. It'll be interesting to see what kind of data they come up with after this trial to see how they tackled some of those challenges. And as you say, it's always tough to be the pioneer. If if we all move to this position, and that will be all normal. But yeah, being being the odd one out is a challenge. It is interesting, isn't it? I think. Um... Was it the other day in the press? I think Marks and Spencers had said that they aren't opening on Boxing Day, which is such a different way of sort of like retail working. There's been, well, uproar on one hand and then sort of like a lot of people celebrating that on the other. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to see the data from the trial, <laughs> I think, before I take a call on that one. Totally. We'll have another conversation in a year's time and we'll Noted. be pouring over... <laughs> We're pouring over uh, whatever comes out of that trial. Laura, what's your second pick for us? My second pick's from the grocer and it's Sainsbury's pushing virtual queue rollout. Um, and it's still quite small. Uh, uh, Sainsbury's are, are pushing this app um, with you first, and it's across 55 stores. So they've added an extra 42 onto this initial trial. And it's basically a queuing app which allows customers to select um, the store in which they wish to shop at and notifies them when they're at the front of the line without the need to physically queue. Uh, and if customers don't have a smartphone, they can be added to the virtual queue with the assistance of staff. And I guess... This is all coming around the fact that we don't know what's going to happen in terms of Christmas shopping. The, the, the retailers don't really know either when people are going to be going and buying their big Christmas shop. Um, unfortunately, England, UK is freezing and <laughs> probably driving with rain for the two weeks before Christmas. So this is probably to negate some of the challenges of uh, a freezing cold in the rain when you're waiting for it for your shop and as we've spoken about a few times before on this um 
show that a lot of the Christmas uh, slots have gone for online, so we need to be driving tra- traffic into to the actual stores. This follows along the path of um, expansion that other retailers have done. So Asda have been in this space and they have a, a similar sort of size rollout. Um, and also John Lewis and M&S uh, have been introducing their own virtual queuing systems over recent months. Interestingly, uh, John Lewis have pushed this quite hard. They've got quite a lot of online advertising uh, around this now that some of their department stores are, are opening again. And I guess they really want to manage some of this uh, traffic flow in store. And M&S, I've noticed it in my local store, they've got an A board outside saying, if you don't want to queue, book a slot on, on, the, uh, on the app. And, and it's always interesting, you know, us Brits love queuing. Um, and I don't know how we'd, I've never been in the M&S queue when someone's fast tracked and gone to the other end to say, oh, well, I've got a, a, a fast track on my app. I think there would be a, a bit of an eye roll and frustration from the long queue behind them. So it'd be interesting to see how, how that's dealt with in, in real life. So the M&S version um, says it allows customers to book a 30 minute slot uh, in one of their uh, standalone 566 uh, food hall branches. So um, the uh, one of the tech firms, Rangefinder, which has uh, brought you, you first to the UK, is saying um, the world that we live in now means supermarkets and their customers are far more, far more open to technology and wanting to make shopping easier. Um, and I guess one of the reasons I want to chat about this and that does it make it easier? You know, if you're going for your shop, do you want to be bothering with exactly what time you're going and when you need us? Maybe this is my unorganised life. Isn't it easier just to get there? And, you know, the likes of uh, Tesco and Aldi now having their uh, signposting system um, at the front of their store, the traffic light system, isn't it easier to get there and think, you know, the queue's not too bad, that's going to take a couple of minutes in our go, is this, do we do we just think for Christmas or is this something that we're going to live with until we're over the pandemic hump? What do you think, Claire? Would you use an app or would you be unorganised like me and rock up and think, oh, that's fine, I'll jump out the car and stand there with my brolly? I, I definitely go for the app. Um, I had two two very different experiences at Marks and Spencers last weekend. So on Friday evening, I went to a very large M&S out of town um, about half past six, walked in, absolutely nobody around, perfect. Um, Saturday, I'd obviously forgotten something, went back and I had to queue for nearly 10 minutes. And when I got into Marks and Spencers, it was an absolute free for all. There were people walking around, walking past each other, not sort of like adhering to the two meter rule. Um, some people not even wearing face masks. So I think, I mean, I, I'm totally up for this, if I'm honest with you. Um, I think it would give me that opportunity to know which what time I'm going in, which is great for me. And then also, I think it will help restrict the numbers within store. And I think that that could be a real sort of bonus. On the other hand, I, I queued in boots um, to go into that store um, after I'd been into um, M&S on the Friday night, where M&S was quite empty. The queue for Boots was about 12 minutes and I saw six different um, people leave the queue because they didn't want to queue any longer. So I think it could help in terms of retail to drive some of that traffic. Yeah, I totally agree. I'd be like you, Claire. I'm absolutely up for using that. I do not want to take the risk of standing around for 10 minutes um, in December. Absolutely no way. And I also, I do think that, um, as you say, it sort of helps manage customer numbers in store and I could also see that um, that potentially helps make 
shoppers feel like they have more permission to browse perhaps so if you have booked a particular slot and um, this is your time uh, you've reserved this and um, I could see it being really beneficial for sort of product discovery and, and browsing because people perhaps don't feel like they have to sort of rush so much um, so yeah I, I could see it being being really beneficial and again it also just feels like as a shopper it returns a sense of control over the experience to you as well you know so much of that whole VTAN experience this year has felt like it's been governed by other forces and you sort of have to try and sort of navigate your way through this sort of stressful experience I mean Laura you talk a lot about how it feels like running the gauntlet when you when you go shopping I think again this can really help with that if you you know you can be in charge of your own timing and um, and know exactly when when your slot um, is up so yeah I'd totally be up for it and I also think once we have people using apps for these kinds of shopping trips it's potentially a great platform to then you know thinking post-pandemic to think about all sorts of other opportunities around loyalty building and, and you know once you have people using their phones or, or using apps uh, in in that kind of environment you can start doing all sorts of other interesting things with them as well beyond just queuing systems yeah the marketing opportunities are endless aren't they with it you're right, and I hadn't thought about that. I guess for more the department store players, the John Lewis's of this world, if they know who's coming in store, they've got their shopping profile and actually they could drive more event-based stuff like they have been doing, trying to do on the, for, the, for the last six months online. How would you feel about going to the front of the queue though, Claire, for, you know, on that on that Saturday when you, a there problem. was a... Yeah. <laughs> 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 like going to the first class queue. I've got, I've got my, I've got my code. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I think Julia raised a really interesting point for me. You do feel like you can't browse. I mean, I was, yeah. I don't know, creating this own sort of like dichotomy in my own head. It's like, oh gosh, I've gone past the milk. Can I go back? I don't know if I can go back. Oh no, there's somebody there and I've forgotten the milk. I've got to go to game. So I think that will really help with giving, like you said, permission to browse and, and just, I don't know, experience supermarket shopping again. Yeah. But yeah, no problems with going first. Not a problem. <laughs> Claire, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. It's been really, really good. Really interesting. We've loved it. Thank you. Thank you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.